Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me, Becca Doherty, as we make our way through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. On today's episode, we will round out our discussion of confession, and then on next week's episode, we'll move into the anointing of the sick. So we're in part two, section two of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, going through each of the seven sacraments, uh, specifically where they can be found in scripture, how they've been handed down in tradition, what the magisterium, so popes, bishops, church councils have said uh, throughout the centuries, and um, how that yeah, how what Jesus taught 2,000 years ago has been handed handed on without error, thank God, to each of us today. I think I mentioned in a previous episode that when I taught at the high school level, I would do this activity with my students throughout the year called Why Do Catholics Do That, or WDCDT. And throughout the year, as different topics would kind of organically arise. So um, we would have these all-school confessions a handful of times each year where class by class, um, or the campus minister would set up, invite priests from other parishes, from parishes nearby to come and hear confessions. So they'd set up, let's say in the auditorium or the gym, confessionals all around. And then uh, class by class, all the kids would be invited to go down. They would not have to go to confession. Many students were not Catholic, um, but they would be invited to go to confession, have the opportunity to go to confession throughout the year. So when we hit that point of the year, we would do a WDCDT um, in my class about confession. When um, we celebrated the Immaculate Conception, a lot of my students um, knew what the Immaculate Conception was because every year in Catholic school, they would have off December 8th to celebrate the Immaculate Conception. But as we talked about in a previous episode, um, not only many students, but many Catholics um, did not know exactly what the Immaculate Conception was and from where that came. So as we hit, you know, various uh, topics typically misunderstood in the Catholic faith throughout the year, we would make these WDCDT index cards. And on the front of the card, I would have the students write the topic, so in this case, confession. And then on the back, they would write a scripture reference that showed where Christ had instituted or supported the institution of the sacrament by Christ. They would write a sacred tradition reference. So sacred tradition, capital T tradition, is the oral preaching of the apostles handed down in the church from bishop to bishop to bishop. But over time, because we're 2,000 years into this Catholic faith, that sacred tradition has been written um, oftentimes in the catechism. So I would often have them write a catechism reference that supported this teaching or showed how this teaching has been handed on for centuries. And then lastly, they would write a magisterial reference to either a pope, a bishop, a church council. Um, they would write down a reference to a time in church history where a pope had spoken about this teaching, um, a church council had, had further clarified it, etc. So um, with confession, um, oh, and I think I, I may have mentioned in a previous episode that at the end of the year, their big project, they would make, I don't know, any, anywhere from 10 to 15 cards throughout the year. At the end of the year, their big final project was to get up. They would arrange themselves into groups of about three or four students. They would get up, they could use their cards, and then I would sit with the class and we would, we would raise a lot of questions that you know, have been raised over the centuries that 
that people say today, um, you know, why do I have to confess my sins to a priest? Like, why can't I just privately confess my sins to God? So it was fun for me as the teacher because I, I had been fielding these questions all year. And um, you might feel this way as, as a Christian, as a Catholic, oftentimes, you know, at Thanksgiving or Christmas gatherings with family and friends, you know, as, as Catholicism um, or topics of Catholicism naturally arise, you know, oftentimes you may have gotten these questions as well. I, I still remember this moment where I was a few years into teaching and um, before I was married and had children and live in the single life, I would leave school and go to a Starbucks or a Barnes and Noble and, um, you know, sit in a big comfy chair and then grade papers or a lesson plan, um, do stuff for school. And oftentimes as people were kind of coming and going, you know, someone might observe me greeting a stack of papers and say like, oh, you know, what are you doing? And, um, you know, naturally it would go from, or oftentimes it would go from, I'm a teacher, where do you teach? I teach at, you know, this Catholic high school. Oh, I used to be Catholic or, you know, I've always wondered why Catholic. So I just set aside my papers, you know, okay, yeah, well, here's why we believe what we believe. Here's where we, we, uh, you know, get that teaching. So please God, may those those after-school uh, chats in Starbucks and Barnes and Noble have yielded, or may they yield one day for all of eternity, uh, conversion back to the faith or clarity regarding what the church teaches. So, as we're in the the midst of discussing confession, um, I thought it would be worthwhile noting a sacred scripture, an SS reference, sacred tradition, ST reference, and a magisterial reference or an M reference as to why we believe what we believe, or why do Catholics do that? Why do Catholics go to confession? So there are a number of scripture passages uh, referring to confession th through, throughout the Bible, but most notably in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, we read, uh, after the resurrection, Christ comes into the upper room where the apostles or the first bishops of the church are huddled together, you know, scared, hiding, they're afraid that People are going to do to them what they just did to Jesus Christ. And um, so Christ, now resurrected from the dead, passes through the doors, the locked doors of the upper room, and uh, enters, breathes on them, and says, peace be with you. So think back to another time in scripture where uh, God breathed on man, and that was in Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. He breathes, breath into the nostrils of Adam, the first man, and gives him life. So it's significant that Christ, first he, he enters the room post-resurrection and <sighs> breathes on his apostles, his followers, the first bishops or leaders of the church, and gives them life to then go forth and give life to others. So let's read Gospel of John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Scripture says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them and whose sins you retain are retained. So that last line is key. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain or don't forgive are retained or not forgiven. 
So we believe that Christ in this moment institutes the sacrament of confession. He entrusts the apostles, the first bishops, the first priests, the power to forgive and not forgive sins. Okay, well, then, as you might be wondering, as my students uh, started wondering, well, can a priest not forgive sins? Um, you know, is that possible? Is that allowed? Yes, and the, the only thing that would prevent a priest from forgiving our sins is if we withhold sins or we, we show that we are not contrite. So, I don't know, maybe someone is going through the motions, um, let's say, like in my case, let's say I have a student who, you know, we're, we're going down to the auditorium, we're going to the gym where confession is set up, and it's like, okay, you know, Miss Pine says we have to go to confession, don't want to ruffle any other feathers, don't really believe in this or want to do this, but I'll just go through the motions and do it. If the priest senses in confession that that student is not contrite, or maybe that student even says like, nah, you know, I'm not really sorry, but like, I'll just say it, then the priest could say, well, um, Okay, I can't give you absolution because obviously you're not sorry. And in order to be sorry, excuse me, in order to be forgiven, one must be sorry. So in order, if you, if you picture it, um, I'm very visual. So I picture like I go into the confessional and it's like I scoop up the sins within me and I, I place them before the priest. Then Christ through the priest can wash them away, wipe them away, toss them in the trash. If instead I come into the confessional and I don't hand anything or I don't place anything before the Lord, well, there's nothing then to wipe away, and so I'm not forgiving because I haven't put anything forth to be forgiven. Also, uh, another reason for not being forgiven, another way I could not be forgiven, is if I go into the confessional and let's say I have five sins I have committed, and I confess sins one, two, three, and four, but maybe sin number five is is really embarrassing or um, kind of icky for me to say in confession. If I don't put that forth, and so I think like, mm, I'm not going to say that. I withhold that. Again, it can't be forgiven, and it actually invalidates the rest of the things I've I've confessed because I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not putting forth what needs to be forgiven, and so forgiveness cannot be offered. Okay, so we see in Gospel of John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, Jesus entrusts to the apostles, the first priests, the first bishops, the power to forgive and not forgive sins. So he gives them this power, not because they're great or better than anyone else. Okay, think through some of the apostles, Peter, most notably, who has just denied Christ three times, um, or excuse me, denied Christ before the cock crowed three times, is that right? <laughs> um he is by no means perfect or sinless or necessarily any better than, than the rest of Jesus's followers. But God, for whatever reason, chose him to be his follower. Um, love you, St. Peter, not saying you're a bad guy. Uh, God has chosen him to be his, his follower, his priest, his apostle, his first pope, um, and gives him this power. So Again, great opportunity for reflection for each of us there. I don't need to be perfect or better than or great in, by any means for God to use me, for God to first love me, offer me forgiveness, salvation, um, and then to use me to offer others, you know, forgiveness, salvation, etc. So that's our, our scripture reference. Secondly, if you think back to a paragraph we read last week, paragraph 1447, the catechism details um, the handing down in church history of the sacrament of confession. So let's just look back real quick at paragraph 1447, which said, 
Uh, so skipping down a few lines, it says, During the first centuries, the reconciliation of Christians who had committed particularly grave sins after their baptism, for example, idolatry, murder, adultery, was tied to a very rigorous discipline according to which penitents had to do public penance for their sins, often for years before receiving reconciliation. The Catechism then goes on to say that during the 7th century, Irish mis- missionaries, inspired by the Eastern monastic tradition, took to continental Europe the private practice of penance, which did not require public and prolonged completion of penitential works before reconciliation with the church. Skipping down again a little bit. This new practice envisioned the possibility of repetition and so opened the way to a regular frequenting of the sacrament. And this is what's now practiced, has been practiced for centuries uh, to this day. So initially, um, penitential practices were very public, um, so just imagine that for a second. Um, you know, I, I commit a, a sin, a grave sin. I would have to do these public penances such that my fellow Christians, my fellow non-Christians, would see me performing these, you know, basically saying sorry to God and trying to atone for my sins. Um, can you imagine Imagine the, the chatter of the church and uh, chatter of the town, like, oh, what did she do? Maybe we don't invite her over for dinner. <laughs> okay. Um, so at some point, 7th century, so still early on, in ter- we're in 2023, this was 7th century, so think 600s, Irish missionaries um, bring to continental Europe, so they come to the continent and start hearing confessions privately and offering penances privately. privately excuse me. So uh, while, while confession used to be public and is now private, fundamentally the sacrament has not changed for 2,000 years. So so recall, beginning of paragraph 1447, during the first centuries, the reconciliation of Christians. So confession has been practiced for centuries, millennia uh, in the church. And while certain um, little T traditions, so confession used to be public and pe- penitential practices used to be public, now it's they're private, uh, fundamentally, the sacrament has not changed. People would confess to a priest, the priest would offer absolution, and the penitent would do, perform penance um, to atone for his or her sins. Fundamentally, that sacrament has not changed. Lastly, for our magisterial reference, um, if you look back again to some of the paragraphs we covered last week, starting in paragraph 1455 and then continuing into some of the paragraphs you'll hear read on the second half of the episode uh, uh, through paragraph 1471, um, we see that the Council of Trent, which took place in 1551, or that was one of the years that it took place, the church interpreted this scripture, interpreted sacred tradition, and then taught more of the reasons for and taught about the beauty of the sacrament of confession. So if you want, you could look up, you could just Google Council of Trent 1551 sacrament of confession and read a little more detailedly um, about the church's teaching on the sacrament of confession. So at the Council of Trent, 1500 years into the Catholic Church. Um, The Church does not change the teaching on the sacrament of confession, does not create anything new on the sacrament of confession. It's simply the council, so that would be the the Pope and the bishops in communion with him, 
look at scripture, look at tradition, and just continue to clarify, expound upon the sacrament of confession. This is why we do what we do. This is what Christ has entrusted to us. And uh, here we go. Let's embrace the, this beautiful sacrament and receive all the graces that God has in store for us. So if you want to be ready for uh, anyone asking you, you know, why do sacraments go to the confession? Go to the sacrament. Why do Catholics go to the sacrament of confession, or why can't I just confess my my sins to a priest? Um, you could refer refer to some of our earlier episodes where we talk about, um, you know, it's very it's very human to talk to someone and to be heard. Uh, you are forgiven, or God forgives you through the sacrament. Um, it's very human and very helpful to get advice on how not to commit those sins again, and then you could have these. Scripture, tradition, and magisterial references, literally, on a card in your back pocket and, uh, you know, just bust it out at Thanksgiving. Well, actually, did you know that in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, did you know that Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1447, or did you know that the Council of Trent in the year 1551, <laughs> that will really win you some friends and, um, you know, warm glances around the Thanksgiving table. But, uh, you know, Jesus never promised that we would be popular. He just said he would be with us and give us the truth, truth, and nothing but the truth, which will make us happy, not just in the next life, but even along the way in this life. All right, so those are our, our why, do Catholic, why do Catholics do that uh, references for the day. Before we move to the second half of the episode and read through our catechism selection, I want to highlight two other lines or lines from two other paragraphs, uh, which I think are, are really just beautiful. So one comes from paragraph 1487 uh, in the in brief section, and it says, the sinner, so when we sin, wounds God's honor and love, his own human dignity as a man called to be a son of God, and the spiritual well-being of the church, of which each Christian ought to be a living stone. So that line there, his own human, we wound our own human dignity as men and women called to be a son of God, sons and daughters of God. Um, I think that's worth noting because oftentimes sin is portrayed as something um, like exciting and kind of like daredevil-y and like, oh my gosh, you're stepping away from that like old-fashioned way of being or thinking and you're doing something like risky or exciting or, you know, sexy even. And I think this line reminds us that we as human beings are not made for sin. Um, and so sin hurts, hurts our relationships and it hurts us. It wounds our human dignity so that we are actually um, less happy and less whole as a result of committing that sin. Oftentimes living a virtuous, wholesome life is portrayed as like boring and like, okay, you want to step away from that every once in a while and live a little. But when we sin, it's actually the opposite of living. It's the opposite of life because we are not made for that. Um, and ultimately it doesn't make us happy. Uh, one other line I want to point out is jumping back to paragraph 1472. Towards the end, it's it talks about... Um, the, the punishments of sin, um, so our, our temporal punishment and our eternal punishment, it says these two punishments must not be conceived of as a kind of vengeance inflicted by God from without, but as following from the very nature of sin. So our, our temporal punishment, so our punishment or our suffering within time, 
and our eternal punishment, so God forbid being separated for all of eternity from God, should not be conceived of, the catechism says, as some like vengeance from God, like, ha ha, you sinned against me and so now I will punish you, I will smite you, I will keep you out of the gates of heaven, or like I will make you suffer during this life because of what you did, as though God's like I think I think the image is like he's like a Zeus on Mount Olympus who's like this petulant child um, or like man child that against whom we you know we we sinned we um, you know we disobeyed him and now like haha he's gonna make us pay um, the catechism again beautifully gently reminds us like that's not the case to sin um, inherently has consequences. So, uh, but is following from the very nature of sin. So when we sin, there's something in sin that just goes against who we are and what we were made for. It goes against the very nature of reality. And so there are consequences. And so we might think of it like this. If, um, you know, I, my kids like to cook with me. And so I will tell them like, okay, you can stand here and, you know, wear your little apron and hold this long wooden spoon, but don't touch that hot burner because that will hurt you. Um, at times they have, have touched the burner, touched the hot pan and like reeled back in pain. And it's not as though I'm saying like, ha ha, you disobeyed me, Peter, Sophia, Declan. And so now, you know, your skin will be burned and you will be in pain. Um, no, it's like the very nature of touching something that's hot, it'll burn you. And so when we sin, um, it, it burns us. It, it hurts us, you know, in our very relationship with ourselves. It hurts our relationship with God, and it hurts our relationship with, with others because we are not made for it, and um, it does damage to, to our very selves. And so I think that line is just a, a beautiful reminder and helps us get out of that misconception that God is out to get us. Or again, he's like this petulant man child who hmm, is like, per, like harumphy and you know, storms off because we didn't do what, what he says we should do. So let's end the first half of this episode by inviting God into our minds and the way we think about sin and confession. And let's invite him into our hearts and our relationships. And let's invite him more deeply into our lives uh, to give us the grace to live our, our lives well um, and not sin. When we sin, go to the sacrament of confession. And also to, to teach this well to others, to to live this well personally, but also to be able to talk about confession and the nature of sin in a way that's that's helpful to others and invites others to come to the sacrament as well. So we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the gift of confession, the gift of the sacrament, and we just pray that you'll fill our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our souls, our spirits, our lives, all of our relationships, and just fill us with your grace, with your truth, with your light so that we can come to understand more deeply how sin affects us, um, affects our relationships with you and others, and help us to speak beautifully, to live beautifully this, this teaching, to, to frequent this sacrament, and to speak well of it to others so that others are drawn in um, to this truth, this beauty, and this goodness. And we thank you for being with us, for loving us, and for having a beautiful plan for each and every one of us. We offer this up in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, we'll take a brief break, return on the second half to read paragraphs 1461 through 1498. Thanks for sticking around.
You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1461 through 1498. The Minister of this Sacrament. Since Christ entrusted to his apostles the ministry of reconciliation, bishops who are their successors and priests, the bishops' collaborators, continue to exercise this ministry. Indeed, bishops and priests, by virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, have the power to forgive all sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sins brings reconciliation with God, but also with the church. Since ancient times, the bishop, visible head of a particular church, has thus rightfully been considered to be the one who principally has the power and ministry of reconciliation. He is the moderator of the penitential discipline. Priests, his collaborators, exercise it to the extent that they have received the commission either from their bishop or religious superior or the pope, according to the law of the church. Certain particularly grave sins incur excommunication, the most severe ecclesiastical penalty, which impedes the reception of the sacraments and the exercise of certain ecclesiastical acts, and for which absolution consequently cannot be granted, according to canon law, except by the Pope, the bishop of the place or priests authorized by them. In danger of death, any priest, even if deprived of faculties for hearing confessions, can absolve from every sin and excommunication. Priests must encourage the faithful to come to the sacrament of penance and must make themselves available to celebrate the sacrament each time Christians reasonably ask for it. When he celebrates the sacrament of penance, the priest is fulfilling the ministry of the Good Shepherd, who seeks the lost sheep, of the Good Samaritan, who binds up wounds, of the Father, who awaits the prodigal son and welcomes him on his return, and of the just and impartial judge, whose judgment is both just and merciful. The priest is the sign and the instrument of God's merciful love for the sinner. The confessor is not the master of God's forgiveness, but its servant. The minister of this sacrament should unite himself to the intention and charity of Christ. He should have a proven knowledge of Christian behavior, experience of human affairs, respect and sensitivity toward the one who has fallen. He must love the truth, be faithful to the magisterium of the church, and lead the penitent with patience towards healing and full maturity. He must pray and do penance for his penitent, entrusting him to the Lord's mercy. Given the delicacy and greatness of this ministry and the respect due to persons, the church declares that every priest who hears confessions is bound under very severe penalties to keep absolute secrecy regarding the sins that his penitents have confessed to him. He can make no use of knowledge that confession gives him about penitents' lives. This secret, which admits of no exceptions, is called the sacramental seal, because what the penitent has made known to the priest remains sealed by the sacrament. The Effects of this Sacrament The whole power of the sacrament of penance consists in restoring us to God's grace and joining us with him in an intimate friendship. Reconciliation with God is thus the purpose and effect of this sacrament. For those who receive the sacrament of penance with contrite heart and religious disposition, reconciliation is usually followed by peace and serenity of conscience with strong spiritual consolation. Indeed, the sacrament of reconciliation with God brings about a true spiritual resurrection, restoration of the dignity and blessings of the life of the children of God, of which the most precious is friendship with God. This sacrament reconciles us with the church. Sin damages or even breaks fraternal communion. 
The sacrament of penance repairs or restores it. In this sense, it does not simply heal the one restored to ecclesial communion, but has also a revitalizing effect on the life of the church, which suffered from the sin of one of her members. Reestablished or strengthened in the communion of saints, the sinner is made stronger by the exchange of spiritual goods among all the living members of the body of Christ, whether still on pilgrimage or already in the heavenly homeland. It must be recalled that this reconciliation with God leads, as it were, to other reconciliations, which repair the other breaches caused by sin. The forgiven penitent is reconciled with himself in his inmost being, where he regains his innermost truth. He is reconciled with his brethren, whom he has in some way offended and wounded. He is reconciled with the church. He is reconciled with all creation. That was Pope John Paul II. In this sacrament, the sinner, placing himself before the merciful judgment of God, anticipates in a certain way the judgment to which he will be subjected at the end of his earthly life. For it is now in this life that we are offered the choice between life and death, and it is only by the road of conversion that we can enter the kingdom, from which one is excluded by grave sin. In converting to Christ through penance and faith, the sinner passes from death to life and does not come into judgment. Indulgences The doctrine and practice of indulgences in the church are closely linked to the effects of the sacrament of penance. What is an indulgence? An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. An indulgence is partial or plenary according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. The faithful can gain indulgences for themselves or apply them to the dead. The Punishments of Sin To understand this doctrine and practice of the church, it is necessary to understand that sin has a double consequence. Grave sin deprives us of communion with God and therefore makes us incapable of eternal life, the privation of which is called the eternal punishment of sin. On the other hand, every sin, even venial, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures, which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. These two punishments must not be conceived of as a kind of vengeance inflicted by God from without, but as following from the very nature of sin. A conversion which proceeds from a fervent charity can attain the complete purification of the sinner in such a way that no punishment would remain. The forgiveness of sin and restoration of communion with God entail the remission of the eternal punishment of sin, but temporal punishment of sin remains. While patiently bearing sufferings and trials of all kinds, and when the day comes, serenely facing death, the Christian must strive to accept this temporal punishment of sin as a grace. He should strive by works of mercy and charity, as well as by prayer and the various practices of penance, to put off completely the old man and to put on the new man. In the communion of saints, the Christian who seeks to purify himself of his sin and to become holy with the help of God's grace is not alone. The life of each of God's children is joined in Christ and through Christ in a wonderful way to the life of all the other Christian brethren in the supernatural unity of the mystical body of Christ as in a single mystical person. In the communion of saints, a perennial link of charity exists between the faithful who have already reached their heavenly home, those who are expiating their sins in purgatory, and those who are still pilgrims on earth. 
Between them there is, too, an abundant exchange of all good things. In this wonderful exchange, the holiness of one profits others, well beyond the harm that the sin of one could cause others. Thus, recourse to the communion of saints lets the contrite sinner be more promptly and efficaciously purified of the punishments for sin. We also call these spiritual goods of the communion of saints the church's treasury, which is not the sum total of the material goods which have accumulated during the course of the centuries. On the contrary, the treasury of the church is the infinite value, which can never be exhausted, which Christ's merits have before God. They were offered so that the whole of mankind could be set free from sin and attain communion with the Father. In Christ, the Redeemer himself, the satisfactions and merits of his redemption exist and find their efficacy. This treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission the Father entrusted to them. In this way, they attained their own salvation and at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity of the mystical body. Obtaining indulgence, excuse me, obtaining indulgence from God through the church. An indulgence is obtained through the church, who by virtue of the power of binding and loosing granted her by Christ Jesus, intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints to obtain from the Father of mercies the remission of the temporal punishments due for their sins. Thus, the church does not want simply to come to the aid of these Christians, but also to spur them to works of devotion, penance, and charity. Since the faithful departed, now being purified, are also members of the same communion of saints, one way we can help them is to obtain indulgences for them, so that the temporal punishments due for their sins may be remitted. The Celebration of the Sacrament of Penance Like all the sacraments, penance is a liturgical action. The elements of the celebration are ordinarily these. A greeting and blessing from the priest, reading the word of God to illuminate the conscience and elicit contrition, and an exhortation to repentance. The confession, which acknowledges sins and makes them known to the priest, the imposition and acceptance of a penance, the priest's absolution, a prayer of thanksgiving and praise, and dismissal with the blessing of the priest. The Byzantine liturgy recognizes several formulas of absolution in the form of invocation, which admirably express the mystery of forgiveness. May the same God who through the prophet Nathan forgave David when he confessed his sins, who forgave Peter when he wept bitterly, the prostitute when she washed his feet with her tears, the publican and the prodigal son, through me, a sinner, forgive you both in this life and in the next, and enable you to appear before his awe-inspiring tribunal without condemnation, he who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. The sacrament of penance can also take place in the framework of a communal celebration in which we prepare ourselves together for confession and give thanks together for the forgiveness received. Here, the personal confession of sins and individual absolution are inserted into a liturgy of the word of God with readings and a homily, an examination of conscience conducted in common, a communal request for forgiveness, the Our Father, and a thanksgiving in common. This communal celebration expresses more clearly the ecclesial character of penance. However, regardless of its manner of celebration, the sacrament of penance is always, by its very nature, a liturgical action, and therefore an ecclesial and public action. 
In case of grave necessity, recourse may be had to a communal celebration of reconciliation with general confession and general absolution. Grave necessity of this sort can arise when there is imminent danger of death without sufficient time for the priest or priests to hear each penitent's confession. Grave necessity can also exist when, given the number of penitents, there are not enough confessors to hear individual confessions properly in a reasonable time so that the penitents, through no fault of their own, would be deprived of sacramental grace or holy communion for a long time. In this case, for the absolution to be valid, the faithful must have the intention of individually confessing their grave sins in the time required. The diocesan bishop is the judge of whether or not the conditions required for general absolution exist. A large gathering of the faithful on the occasion of major feasts or pilgrimages does not constitute a case of grave necessity. Individual integral confession and absolution remain the only ordinary way for the faithful to reconcile themselves with God and the church, unless physical or moral impossibility excuses from this kind of confession. There are profound reasons for this. Christ is at work in each of the sacraments. He personally addresses every sinner. My son, your sins are forgiven. He is the physician tending each one of the sick who need him to cure them. He raises them up and reintegrates them into fraternal communion. Personal confession is thus the form most expressive of reconciliation with God and with the church. In brief, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Jesus showed himself to his apostles. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The forgiveness of sins committed after baptism is conferred by a particular sacrament called the sacrament of conversion, confession, penance, or reconciliation. The sinner wounds God's honor and love, his own human dignity as a man called to be a son of God, and the spiritual well-being of the church, of which each Christian ought to be a living stone. To the eyes of faith, no evil is graver than sin, and nothing has worse consequences for sinners themselves, for the church, and for the whole world. To return to communion with God after having lost it through sin is a process born of the grace of God who is rich in mercy and solicitous for the salvation of men. One must ask for this precious gift for oneself and for others. The movement of return to God, called conversion and repentance, entails sorrow for and an abhorrence of sins committed and the firm purpose of sinning no more in the future. Conversion touches the past and the future and is nourished by hope in God's mercy. The sacrament of penance is a whole consisting in three actions of the penitent and the priest's absolution. The penitent's acts are repentance, confession or disclosure of sins to the priest, and the intention to make reparation and do works of reparation. Repentance, also called contrition, must be inspired by motives that arise from faith. If repentance arises from love of charity for God, it is called perfect contrition. If it is founded on other motives, it is called imperfect. One who desires to obtain reconciliation with God and with the church must confess to a priest all the unconfessed grave sins he remembers after having carefully examined his conscience. The confession of venial faults without being necessary in itself is nevertheless strongly recommended by the church. The confessor proposes the performance of certain acts of satisfaction or penance to be performed by the penitent in order to repair the harm caused by sin and to reestablish habits befitting a disciple of Christ. 
Only priests who have received the faculty of absolving from the authority of the church can forgive sins in the name of Christ. The spiritual effects of the sacrament of penance are reconciliation with God, by which the penitent recovers grace, reconciliation with the church, remission of the eternal punishment incurred by mortal sins, remission, at least in part, of temporal punishments resulting from sin, peace and serenity of conscience and spiritual consolation, an increase of spiritual strength for the Christian battle, individual and integral confession of grave sins followed by absolution remains the only ordinary means of reconciliation with God and with the church. Through indulgences, the faithful can obtain the remission of temporal punishment resulting from sin for themselves and also for the souls in purgatory. This brings us to the end of our reading selection and the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week. Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast and on Facebook under Rebecca Doherty. I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.